This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Hello and welcome to The Doctor Is In. I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Mail Boy, do we get mail, Joel. We do. We get all those nasty grams. And, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But... I get some of those, yeah. <laughs> well, it... <laughs> they're not nasty. I get people who take issue with my uh, some of the things I say. I take issue with things you say all well, the okay. time. Especially my wife the... does a lot. She doesn't send mail over. Well, the no. mutterings that you do as you're talking to yourself in the hallway, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. But we have mail. In fact, uh, not only do we get questions, we get answers. And we get input from readers and yeah. you have a couple i believe yeah they, they send good information and in general there's not an easy way to put that into the system but it occurred to me as we're talking about listener mailbag um, today that we could take some of the answers and, and pass them on sure. so for example andrew vk1da notes that in the march 30th 2017 episode that goes back away yeah it does well i have i keep a lot of mail <laughs> <laughs> We were talking about speech processing, and I had mentioned using RF speech processing instead of or in preference to audio speech processing. And we didn't really talk about it, but he notes that he has used both, and he offers the classic reasoning for RF speech processing. And I thought that was worth passing along. And the answer is it's all about distortion products and whether they fall in-band or out-of-band. In this case, in-band means within the SSB channel bandwidth of, say, 2 to 3 kilohertz. So if the clipping is performed at audio frequencies, and of course you have frequencies at the low end of that range. So, for example, if you're saying something with a component at 1,000 hertz and you clip it and you get harmonics, the harmonics at 2,000 and 3,000 will be possibly within the band of your channel and cause distortion. On the other hand, if you instead do the clipping at RF, which generally means at an intermediate frequency within the radio or sometimes outside the radio, the uh, harmonics are at multiples of the IF frequency, like 455 kilohertz. And that just doesn't show up in the equation. So while you still can get distortion products, the idea of getting this harmonic distortion that's generated by clipping is significantly reduced and maybe eliminated. So that makes to, sense. Something yeah. to think about. So some people that advertise that their radio does RF speech clipping actually does have an advantage over audio clipping even though they look about the same on the meter, and they both increase your average power. And in both cases, it's important to uh, keep in mind when you do that, that you're increasing the average power into your linear amplifier if you use one and all of your other equipment. So you have to make sure that um, it's up to the task, that the power supply that's feeding the linear amplifier can handle the additional current required for the higher yes. intensity signal. And then you also had uh, some input from Craig, WE2DX, and uh, comments about uh, the September 13th, 2018 podcast about tools. 
I believe. Yes. And we talked about Phillips screwdrivers, and I mentioned during that that there are Asian pattern Phillips-like screwdrivers, and I didn't mention them by name, but he points out that it's important to know about them because so many things are made in the, in Asia, and they're made with these kinds of screwdrivers or assembled with these kinds of screwdrivers. So you want to take them apart. Using the same kind of screwdriver will be much more effective and less likely to damage screw heads. So they're called Japanese Industrial Standard, or JIS screwdriver. And um, instead of trying to use a Phillips screwdriver that doesn't fit on your Japanese-made radio or some other radios too, you might want to consider buying a set of JIS screwdrivers, and then you won't damage the equipment. He works in uh, bicycles for 30 years, and many of the bicycle parts from come from Japan and China and require these tools as well. But he's found them absolutely necessary when removing case covers and almost all screws in Asian-built radio. So Craig recommends... Um, purchasing a set of different sizes, and you can get the set of four on Amazon or some other place for under $20. And oh, that's not bad. No, and it's it's good to have in your toolkit because you think about the fraction of equipment that we get that's made in Asia, and most of it made with this kind of screws, <laughs> makes sense to have screwdrivers that fit. So I thought that was a very good uh, comment, and I'm glad to be able to bring it. Absolutely. Back when we were talking about uh, ground conductivity, a while back, and not even that many podcasts ago. No, it was in the context of talking about whether dipoles have to be straight, and we mentioned that yes. the, the patterns shown in books assume a certain ground conductivity, which probably nobody has. I mean, right. Back in the old days, it was very difficult to get precise information about that and to deal with it when figuring out the patterns. So typically, a lot of patterns were over perfect ground or free space, neither of which most of us have unless you're off in outer space. And I remember you telling me that I should uh, just go to my town public service or public works department and ask them about the ground conductivity. And I told you they would just give me a blank stare. But we have heard from somebody who says that uh, there may be alternatives. Yes, indeed. And he points out, Lou, N9WL, uh, I don't know if he said his name, notes that there are ground conductivity maps in many ARL publications and other books, with which is data from the FCC. And the FCC has more detailed ground conductivity maps. Like the books, uh, the, the uh, figures in, in the antenna book and so forth, typically show the whole U.S. and give you a, a rough idea of what they are in different parts parts of the country. But the uh, FCC has more detailed ground conductivity maps available on their website. And uh, this data is actually used by all commercial AM broadcast stations who are required to use this to determine their ground wave effectiveness. And so if you call an, uh, the engineer at a nearby broadcast station, they can tell you what it's like in your area much more closely than if you look at one of these uh, coarse grain maps. Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. yeah. So that's one way to do it. The other way is, um, and I, I hesitate to give links here because people say, well, you give a link and I can't write while I'm driving and I can't <laughs> <laughs> write while I'm jogging or whatever I'm doing while I'm listening. So if you, if you need a link to the raw data, send me an email and there's some chance I'll be able to find the, <laughs> the link and send it to you. I certainly would have when I wrote this down, but um, good That chance. would be doctor at A-R-R-L dot O-R-G. That would work. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to find it again. But uh, it is on the FCC website. But I find that site uh, tends to be a little hard to navigate at times. So that's um, a way to find the details for your area. In fact, I downloaded the whole thing and it's a great big file with like six gigs of data. Jeez. And it just, uh, you know, I mean, that's detailed ground conductivity information for, I don't know if it goes down to your street and house number, but <laughs> but it's it's pretty detailed. So, you know, that gives you, uh, rather than having to go with the extremes or with the, what I often use in, in publications, the uh, easy neck, what do they call it, medium ground or average ground, you can actually use the, the data for your location. I was surprised to find that I shouldn't have been, that my ground conductivity is much lower than 
<laughs> than typical. Oh. So, um, which makes horizontal antennas work better. That's true. That's and true. vertical antennas work not as well. But anyway, it's uh, it is what it is, and and you're stuck with what you have. And this way, you can find out what it is, and you can predict better what your antenna will do if you model it or uh, do other things. Certainly. Well, let's take a break for DX engineering, and we shall return. Okay. Our fellow hams have told us how much they love receiving the DX Engineering catalog. It's 132 pages of amateur radio heaven, packed with competitively priced equipment. You'll find everything from multiband Yagis to whip antennas, the latest base transceivers to mobile radios, and every accessory under the sun. But the catalog only represents a small part of what DX Engineering offers. When you visit DXEngineering.com, you'll find thousands of items from trusted names like ICOM, Yesu, Kenwood, and Alinko. There's world-famous antennas from OptiBeam, E-Antennas, and M-Squared, Roan and American Towers, plus many more. And shop a wide selection of innovative DX Engineering brand products. They're designed and manufactured by our team of amateur radio enthusiasts for hams just like you. Plus, you get the fastest shipping in the ham universe, and shipping is free on most orders over $99. Experience ham radio heaven at dxengineering.com. That's dxengineering.com. And we're back, Joel, and we have a question from Leroy, KC6BIU, and he's asking, I have a 2-meter FM transceiver. When I push the push-to-talk button on my microphone to call up the local repeater, I notice that the displayed frequency changes to a different frequency. What's happening? Oh, yes. Well, this is something we should discuss every now and then because it yes. may not be evident to everybody. The key thing is that repeaters operate on two different frequencies, one they receive on and one they transmit on. And if you think about it, if they transmitted and received on the same frequency, the only signal they'd hear is their own, pretty much. Yes. Unless they're, For a short time. Unless yep. their, their um, antennas were very far apart. So what they do is they transmit on one, which you listen to in your uh, radio, and that's the usually the frequency. We call that the, the downlink frequency. It comes down from the repeater to you, and that's the one that your transceiver shows when you're receiving. That's usually the one that is listed in the repeater directories or other publications that describe the repeater. And then what they do is they also note the difference between the two frequencies and the direction. Now, sometimes there's some standard frequencies. So, for example, on two meters, which you're talking about, the usual difference between the, the downlink and the uplink frequency is usually 600 kilohertz or 0.6 megahertz. And this can be above or below the frequency you're listening to, depending on which part of the band you're in. But check your radio and see if that's what you're seeing when you hit the push to talk. If it's on a repeater, frequency should be 600 kilohertz above or below the receive frequency. I bet it's displaying as transmit frequency, which of course, again, would be in this case, as you point out, 600 kilohertz above or below. Exactly. Right. You do occasionally run into non-standard offsets. One of my local repeaters has a one megahertz separation. Typically, that's because they put the repeater up before things were standardized or for whatever reason. But so they're occasionally different. That's not a every time kind of thing. Now, each band is slightly different. So on... Uh, on 10 meters, the separation is usually 100 kilohertz. On 70 centimeters, it is typically 5 megahertz because if you think about it, the bands aren't big enough to... No. The 2 meters is not big enough to have a 5 megahertz split. But And the further apart the split, the easier it is to filter the receiver to keep the transmit signal out of it. Now, if you, uh, you probably found out about this because you use some software to enter the um, frequencies into memory. Because if you do it manually, which I've always done, you need to be able to say that. You need to specify frequency offset between transmit and receive. Otherwise, it won't work, Peter. And, and similarly, you also have to enter 
in the, the tone, if any, is used in your repeater that accesses the repeater. So it's just one of the parameters that you have to set. And this one shows up on the display. Now, it doesn't have to. I guess I checked all the radios I could. All of mine act that way. That is, you hit the push to talk and you see the uh, transmit frequency when you have it set. Um, there's no reason that transceiver would have to do that. But as I say, most of mine do. And I can't imagine why they wouldn't do that. But uh, oh. not a guarantee that all transceivers do that. Okay. Now, this next question, Joel, is from Rich, AA6RS, and uh, it's lengthy. So bear with me here. He says, I want to put up a 160-meter antenna for DX and have the property to do so, although we'll have to snake through the trees. My station is on the edge of the property. So... It seems a simple decision to end-feed a half-wavelength, 260-foot length of wire strung up as high as possible. I chose a half-wavelength as opposed to a quarter-wavelength because running an extensive counterpoise is extremely difficult to do with the gardens and the outbuildings in the area. I believe, hopefully correctly, that the counterpoise slash ground, as he calls it here, is not necessary other than for lightning protection, he suggests, with a half-wavelength. <laughs> he says, I am sure you can guess my question. Actually, questions. Plural. How can I feed this monster? One, I could bring one end of the antenna down to a remote auto-tuner and connect it to an insulated terminal and ground the ground terminal. Two, I could connect it with a 20-foot length of 450-ohm ladder line. At the auto-tuner end, one leg would be connected to ground on the auto-tuner and the other end to the insulator. Or three, I have a concern about both high impedance and high voltage at the antenna end. Therefore, I could move the feed point. So... Joel, what's the optimum design? That's what he's asking ultimately. Here. Okay, well, I like the off-center fed option three approach. That is to say, to move the feed point away from the end of the antenna. And it, it's important to note that an actual end fed antenna doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, people <laughs> well, have been using now, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. People have been using them for years. But what really happens is the uh, antenna finds the other half of the thing. Right. You can't you can't hook a pair of transmission line wires to one wire and have it drive current into it. The other side has to go to something. And if there's nothing to connect it to, it'll just use the common mode current on the transmission line. Yeah, to use serve the braid of your coax is yeah, what it'll as, use. Yeah, as, right. As an example. Uh, so there's always another side somewhere. And if you don't explicitly arrange for it or provide it, you'll have this common mode thing, which can cause lots of problems in your station or elsewhere. You can use a ground, as you propose in your um, items one or two, in which you you use uh, you feed the wire against ground. But now that ground is really part of the antenna, and it becomes the counterpoise you were trying to avoid. So while it's not um, necessary to have a counterpoise, if you put one in, any resistance in that will reduce the efficiency of your antenna. Perhaps not as much as with a quarter wave, but it's not going to be beneficial. So if you feed it in the off-center mode, and it doesn't have to be very far off-center, it should work much better. And if it's a, if the antenna impedance there is not going to match usual transmission line, use a low-loss line such as window line or ladder line to, uh, to make the connection. Make it into an off-center fed near the end kind of thing. And it doesn't have to be very far from the end. It could be 5, 10 feet and still work very well. So that's my recommendation. I don't know if it's exactly optimum, but I think that will meet your requirements and avoid the need for a ground system. Well, that seems sensible. Well, thank you, Joel. My pleasure. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is in podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple-planet.com. This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved.
Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.